the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, dramatic, monolithic, empirical evidence mounts that gravity is no respecter of genders. E-arcs and strangely spinning quarks. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with James L. Cambius talking about his great new urban fantasy, The Initiate. What if there is a secret order of magicians who basically rule our modern world? They keep themselves secret but can strike anyone at any time. But now one man with magical talent seeks revenge against them for murdering his family, and that's where the initiate picks up. Jim Cambius will tell us lots more about the magical system and the characters in the book in a moment. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. The February E-Arcs are out. Now, an E-Arc is a special bridge time travelers use to jump from epic to epic. But lately, a gang of Weasley, Wisconsin-based time bandits has taken over the bridge to the Cenozoic and is holding us all hostage with massive tolls of super squeaky cheese curds. No, 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 an E-Arc is not that. An E-Arc is actually an electronic advanced reading copy. We will sell you a book about three to four months early, an e-book form, with the copy edit done, but with a few typos along the way. These are the same books that we'll send out to critics for reviews and, and such, and we thought we would make them available to you, and we've been doing it for, for over a decade now. It's a great program. You can read your favorite series a little early or try out something new, and when the books actually appear in print, the e-arcs are no longer for sale, but after you've bought it, it's yours, of course, because at Bain we don't have any DRM on those e-books. Out now in e-arc form is The Shaman of Carries by Eric Flint and Dave Freer. A galactic witch comes into her power. Starship Captain Possert and the witches of Carries must deal with a slaver culture that makes slaves feel happy to be in chains, at least happy on the outside, and if that weren't enough, they're also plunged into a quest for a long-lost alien pet, during which the youngest of the witches, the Lewitt, begins to awaken to her full powers as a healer. And you know, when a witch of Carries comes into her own, she necessarily generates chaos in her wake, and the galaxy itself should rightfully tremble. Also out in E-Arc is Penrick's Travel E-Arc by Lois McMaster Bujold. A wily and witty hero on a journey of destiny. Footloose nobleman Penrick grows wiser and even more wily as he journeys from young lord to sorcerer and scholar in the Bastard's Order. Oh, and he deals with intrigue and solves mysteries along the way. Three stories of epic fantasy from Sefwa Grandmaster Lois McMaster Bujold. This book includes Penrick's Mission, Mira's Last Dance, and The Prisoner of Lemnos. Penrick's Travels E-Arc by Lois McMaster Bujold and The Shaman of Carries E-Arc by Eric Flint and Dave Freer are now available exclusively at Bain.com as a Bain e-book. Get them while they are new and as yet unseen by humans. That is, until you come along. want to welcome James L. Cambius to the podcast. Hey, Jim. Good afternoon. Well, it's great to have you back. James L. Cambius is a writer, game designer, and co-founder of Zygote Games. He was nominated for the 2001 John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. Um, for Bain, he's the author of Arcad's World and uh, a book we're about to talk about, The Initiate. Tell us a little bit about your, your science fiction writing career um, so far, Jim. Well, I started selling short science fiction in 2000, hence the Campbell nomination in 2001. Um, and I concentrated on short fiction for several years. Um, I wrote my first novel in 
2007, but did not sell it for another uh, five years after that um, because of, well, among other things, the global financial crisis of that year, which had publishers worrying whether they were going to be in business next week rather than buying new books. Um, but my first novel, um, A Darkling Sea, came out in 2011, followed by um, uh, Corsair the following year uh, from Tor Books. Um, and then there was a little hiatus after that, after the unfortunate death of David Hartwell, who had been my editor at Tor. And then I was very happily picked up by Bain Books, and my first novel for Bain was um, Arcad's World, which I um, I pitched to uh, Ms. Weitzkopf in the coolest place possible. We were standing on top of a rocket test stand in Huntsville, Alabama, when I uh, uh, asked her if she'd like to see that novel. So I think oh, that is cool. I think there's some rule that if you if you pitch a science fiction novel on a rocket test stand, the editor has to buy it. <laughs> or at least seriously consider the prop the proposal. So, um is uh what about the game stuff? Uh that precedes the writing, I assume. Well, yes, although it was writing too. Um I started doing sure, freelance yeah. role-playing game work beginning in 191991. Uh, um my uh I had been working for a publisher in Chicago and then moved to North Carolina because my wife, Diane, had started graduate school there. I didn't find any publishing jobs there, so I started doing freelance role-playing game writing because back then, way back in the distant 1990s, um, a lot of game publishers still had a house magazine, a print magazine, and that meant that they needed, you know, 48 pages of stuff every month um, and I could crank out a 3,000-word role-playing game adventure once a week. So most of my work was for uh, the company Game Designers Workshop, the company that published the Traveler role-playing game. Um, in particular, they had a game that came out right around then called Space 1889, which I was a huge fan of, and so I wrote a whole bunch of Space 1889 material for their house magazine. Um, but I, that wasn't the only one. I also worked for the Star Wars Adventure Journal, which was a magazine published by West End Games, supporting their Star Wars role-playing game, which is still one of the best role-playing games ever designed. Um, and uh, that actually led to, 20 years later, to me being um, the coolest dad on Earth for a little while, because um, because of their license, Everything produced for the Star Wars role-playing game became property of Lucasfilm. Um, George Lucas was in no mood to be sued by some, you know, greasy-haired game designer over something that looked like something they'd written in an article that in a magazine that he'd never read. So everything that we wrote became property of Lucasfilm. And so I designed a planet for one uh, role-playing adventure. It was a, an inhabited gas giant called um, Talaran which was kind of ripping off Arthur C. Clarke's uh, story, A Meeting with Medusa. Uh, but Clarke was ripping off Carl Sagan, so, you know. Um, and um, um, that apparently caught the eye of somebody who was working on a video game project, so there was some concept art done for that, but it never went anywhere. And then, I don't know, about ten years ago, the Clone Wars comic book did a story set on the planet Talaran. So my son and I were in the comic book shop, and he's looking through the comics, and he wants this one, and I'm looking over his shoulder, and I got to tell him, I invented that planet. And I had the magazine at home to prove it, so, you know, I got to be the coolest dad in the world for a few days. Yeah, that is pretty cool. All I get was bragging rights, but it's still... It's still a nice little ego boost. Yeah, yeah you got paid for making it. I have an up. entry in the Wikipedia as a result. Very cool. Very cool. So, uh, 
what we have out now at Booksellers Everywhere is The Initiate by James L. Cambius. Now, this is um, this is contemporary fantasy. This is not science fiction. Um, it's a really cool sort of concept of magic. Why did you... Uh, maybe we should talk about the origins. Why did you... Uh, leap from science fiction uh, in the last book into the fantasy. Um, was it a natural progression of an idea, or what What? What brought you to this? Um, two reasons. Um, the first was simply that, um, uh, I guess you could say it's the remnant of a misspent education, because um, I got my degree at the University of Chicago in the history of science. Um, and... Uh, my particular focus was on the era of the scientific revolution of the 17th century. I wrote my bachelor paper about Robert Hooke. And the thing is, the scientists of the 17th century, uh, were not, the, the distinction between science and magic in those days was not rigid at all. Um, and so, you know, Isaac Newton spent more of his career doing alchemy than he did doing physics. So I wound up learning a lot about alchemy and magic and natural magic and the utter lack of a distinction between the two among uh, among those fields. Um, and I thought I ought to put some of that put put that money my parents spent getting me that degree to work somehow. <laughs> so um, I decided, okay, I'm going to write a fantasy. Um, and from there. The actual writing, the, the sort of working out the setting, just sort of came my usual practice of what I like to call intellectual brute force. Um, you start with the assumption which one of the characters in the story asks, okay, if magic exists, where are the magicians? Well, obviously they're hiding. Well, okay, why are magicians hiding? One of the standard answers to that is always, oh, they're scared of being persecuted by the normies. But the trouble is, if if you can be persecuted by normies, then you're not much of a magician, are you? You know, uh, why bother being a magician if if you know all it gets you is persecution? Um, so obviously, magic must be powerful, and so the only reason for the people who have this powerful magic to keep it hidden is simply that it makes it easier for them to exploit the ordinary human population. You know, there's that old saying. Uh, quoted in um, um, uh, the usual suspects of the, the greatest trick the devil, devil pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist, and I sort of made that assumption about my magicians, the Apkalu, as well, that they they decided to simply go go secret because it's more convenient for them. And, of course, that then implies a whole lot about the kind of people who would do that, right? That that obviously they can't be very nice people if they're keeping their existence secret just so that they can exploit and batten on the rest of us uh, more conveniently. Um, so, you know, just from sort of first principles, you get a sort of logic produces a hidden order of evil magicians as a logical consequence of magic exists. And they are called the. You said Apkalu, is the way you pronounce it. Nobody knows how it's pronounced because it's a Sumerian word. I found a great online Sumerian dictionary, which I relied on heavily for this um, um, book. And Apkalu is simply a word meaning wise men, which is to say wizards. <laughs> well, before we um, before we talk about the story of the characters, maybe. Expand a little bit on the magic system, since we're talking about the setting and the and uh, how it how it works. Um, sure, um, I I decide I'm a bit of a historical purist, and one of the things that all almost all historical beliefs about magic centered on was that it's all about conjuring and commanding and talking to spirits. You know, if you look at actual Witch trials, they were all talking to spirits. If you look at um, actual books of magic that people believed were real, they're all about calling up and commanding spirits. Whereas the kind of role-playing game-based spells where you cast a fireball at somebody or manipulate the physical world directly, that's very uncommon. So I decided I was going to nod to historical accuracy because I'm that kind of person. So... 
I made the ground rule assumption that all magic in the the initiate would be through the agency of spirits. They command them. Um, now, of course, as one of the characters in the story points out, humans are spirits too. We have souls because if if magic exists, then presumably human souls exist. Um, and so part of their magic also involves being able to manipulate human minds and command humans against their will. But um, otherwise, you know, to affect the physical world, it has to be through the agency of a spirit. And, spirits, and they're different. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, spirits then can be any of a whole variety of kind. I tried to use names for real-world creatures, but um, you know, from real folklore and from all over the different parts of the world, but um, uh, I didn't, I, I, I could sort of assume, because folklore is always massively inconsistent, and even, you know, I could pretty much make up what I wanted. There's, um, it, and the magicians uh, have a way of binding the spirits to do things for them. Um, and for the weaker ones, you just sort of order it around, and the more powerful ones, you have to make a sacrifice or make an agreement You don't see too much of that because my character is still learning a lot of it, and so he isn't really dealing with most of the more powerful ones directly. Yeah, yeah. and that it can drive you crazy in the end because you're inhabiting. You have these these other consciousnesses that are inhabiting you. Yes, or at least hovering about you, or hovering about, enveloping you, or living in things that you're carrying around. And um, in fact. I had initially, in my original draft, I had paid a little more attention to that about how distracting it was to have these other minds, other presences uh, you know, intruding on your mind, but I sort of, that wound up making things just too complicated for the story, so I wound up downplaying that. Yeah, but you have an interesting character who, uh, in Isabella, for instance, who sort of crazy as hell. Yes, well, she's sort of a bad, uh, a dire warning to my main character of what happens if you do get too into this, because she's what happens when you give a six-year-old basically unlimited magical power, or I guess, no, she's a nine-year-old by the time the story begins. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, it's what is that uh, Jerome uh, Bixby story? It's a good day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, she's like the kid in a good life. Well, Except that, you know, it's not her own mental powers. It's just that she has basically made a deal with, I don't know, Nearlesotep or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right. So let's talk about the story. And then we can't really talk about it without talking about Sam um, uh, and what happened to him and what his motivations are. So tell us a little bit about Sam uh, Arcaro, which is... Uh, the name he grew up with, at least. Yeah, so Sam Arcaro, is, when we first meet him, is um, deep mourning and clinical depression and borderline alcoholism after the death of his family. Um, they were killed by what the authorities have called a rabid bear attack, but Sam knows that it was a crow-headed demon that did it, but he hasn't told anyone because... He knows they would think he's crazy, and he sort of suspects that maybe he is. Um, so then he is visited by a man who identifies himself as Mr. Lucas, who knows the truth and tells him that this was a demon, and it was that there are people who can command demons, and that one of these people sent this demon, or, or at least permitted this demon to kill his family. Um, and he offers Sam the chance to get revenge by finding out, by, by basically infiltrating this secret order of wizards. He does start off by giving Sam a little test to see whether he has any magical ability himself, because not everyone can do magic. Um, and Sam passes, which Lucas had sort of suspected already. Uh, that's why he approached him. Um, Sam passes, and... Uh, uh, begins his magical quest. Um, first, he has to steal someone's identity because um, uh, 
magicians, of course, your name is a, is a great source of power over you. They have if you if you want to command somebody magically, you have to know their full name. And uh, plus, there's just the more mundane hazard of you know if you're known to be somebody whose family was killed in a supernatural event, then the the wizards aren't going to let you into their secret club. They'll just top you in the East River or something. Um, so he he adopts a false identity and begins studying magic and looking into the the occult underground of New York City and eventually makes contact with the Apkalu, the secret order of wizards, and begins his training in earnest. Yeah, so he's um, he's he's yeah he's the initiate, and where he is, he's the initiate into the Apkalu, but he's also um, we we have a magic academy here. <laughs> And um, it's a really cool one. <laughs> Post-Academy Instruction, run by Sylvia. Yes, and uh, uh, Sylvia is kind of a Gary Larson character. Uh, she's uh, a dumpy little old lady uh, with uh, uh, weird taste in clothing and, and accessories who runs a magic school that is very different from Hogwarts. <laughs> it's in a basement in, upper Man- in, in the north end of Manhattan, and um, she chain smokes camels and drinks Fanta while she lectures. And um, um, she was my way to explain to the reader how all this works. So one of the things that that um, Sam wants to avoid is anybody getting his blood right. Is there a particularly virulent form of magic that has to do with blood? Well, and again, that's that's got huge histor- uh, folkloric backing for it, and is one of the laws of magic that um, um, uh, Sir James Fraser identifies in, in the Golden Bough. I think is uh, you know that, that if you have a physical connection to somebody, a hair or some of their blood, then you can affect them magically, and certainly that has buckets of. of connection in, in historical magical practices. You know, you get somebody's spittle or somebody's hair or whatever, and they can cast a curse on them. Well, so, yes, uh, one of the things that you do when you get initiated is to give a blood sample. And um, how Sam uh, deals with that requirement while still preserving his need to protect his identity is uh, part of the... Uh, part of the story, part of the process of becoming an initiate for him. Yeah, because his ultimate goal is to destroy this, these people that killed his family. <laughs> so, he, and so, yes, giving them, a, giving them a sample of your blood would be a bad idea. It does have the advantage of, of having a contact on the inside who can warn him about things. Yeah, but the Lucas is is someone who has his own interests, and he's he's um, teamed up. The, you know, that's like you can help me, and I can help you. When he's talking with Sam right at the at the beginning, right? So Sam gets some some intel that helps him. Uh, yes, because Lucas wants to have somebody who can be an a, an operative within the organization who can't be shut down by any of the normal methods. Yeah, and it can't be Lucas because they already got his have his blood. He says. So, so tell us about the students. Like, tell us about Isabella. <laughs> She's so when Sam is in in magic school at Post Academy Instruction, the name of the school is. Um, it's called that because of its address. Um, he's uh, he's there's three other students. It's not a huge class. There's him. There's uh, a young woman named Mooncat, or at least that's the name she gives. Everybody gives abbreviated or aliases. Um, and she is in some ways the saddest character in the book because as a result of Sam's crusade, her, her life gets destroyed. Um, and I have ideas for her in this potential sequel. We give her a little revenge. Um, uh, there's a young man named Shimon who is uh, uh, hardly appears at all, um, and there is Isabella, who is a lot of people's favorite character. Isabella is about nine years old, and is a 
orphaned from a very young age. Um, but it's okay because Isabella has friends. And Isabella's friends teach her all kinds of interesting stuff, and they take care of her, and they get her things, and they're not humans. And uh, so Isabella basically just hangs around Manhattan, treating it as her private playground. And uh, uh, she is exactly what you would expect a nine-year-old with basically unlimited power and no few, if any, constraints on her would be like. Yeah, she can compel. She can. Uh, she sleeps where she wants to. Stays where she wants. Just yeah, she knows. I, a lot of the places she mentions are real. Like there really were apartments built in the New York Public Library building for the use of librarians. So she sleeps in the public library or in in hotel suites or whatever um and she has at least one sort of thrall a uh a man who uh a, a predator who picked the wrong little girl to prey upon um and is now her her helpless servant um and uh you know she's the she is definitely making too many sacrifices to uh, of herself and her identity and her autonomy to powerful being powerful non-human beings um, to the point where it's not clear that she's even a human anymore by the end <clears throat> so the um, part of the book uh, a good good part of the book um, bec- it becomes a mystery of sorts and we uh, we have another character who comes in named Moreno um, he's kind of a detective and he and Sam form a sort of alliance of uh, of of uh, necessity. What tell us about him and and what's going on? That I mean, without giving you know, we don't want to spoil anything. But uh... so Moreno is kind of like the internal affairs division of the Abkalu, or at least of the ones in Manhattan, in New York. Um, he he bears a, a particular magical weapon or an anti-magical weapon called the mitum, which is this extremely ancient artifact that negates magic in its immediate vicinity. So he is, when he wields that, he is proof against any other sorcery, and so it's naturally only given to people who are extremely reliable. Although, as he points out, you know, while he has it, any jerk with a Saturday night special could, could kill him. No, ma- he can't have any magical protections in place while he carries it, so it's definitely a mixed blessing. Um, and Moreno is, uh, you know, I, I made him a, uh, he's a, he's a fairly cultured man. He has these, you know, retro tastes. He likes Rat Pack era clothes and cars and home decor and all the rest. Um, and he's, uh, uh, he's convinced of the rightness of his job. He's an honest man doing this job. You know, he believes sincerely that the the conspiracy of the Apkalu, while it is morally compromised, is worse than the alternative of not having an organization to keep them in check at all. And so he does his best to preserve and maintain it. And there are certain powers within it, the sages, who, uh, if that, if one is killed, you need to find out who did it. <laughs> the... Yes, the, 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 well... The rule is actually that any the death of any member of the Apkalu should be avenged, and it's either going to be that person's family members, if it's or if or it will fall to someone like Moreno. Um, and so, um, you know, his he winds up investigating any and trying to adjudicate any disputes among Apkalu, and when. When some of the people Sam is targeting start turning up dead, uh, Moreno has to investigate. Um, he winds up. He is, meanwhile, sort of training Sam because he is uh, has spotted Sam as a potentially useful recruit, and for um, uh, for various reasons, um, he he trusts Sam. Um, for one, I mean, he knows Sam's, he does not know that Sam is operating under a false identity. And so he, you know, he uses magic to, to question him, not realizing that he is 
uh, that Sam is still lying to him. Um, so, um, you know, he, he trusts Sam perhaps more than he should, and um, he, at least at first. And so, uh, you know, the two of them are investigating crimes that in some cases Sam is responsible for. <clears throat> and I'm not going to go into any more detail than that. Yeah, yeah. One of the interesting parts of uh, uh, the, so Sam is he's kind of I mean he's had a terrible thing happen his family destroyed and now he's he's out for revenge but he's also um, a human being and um, he forms a relationship in the book that's that takes on interesting aspects because it it can't conflict it's, it's like this other world of rea- of normality that he's trying to maintain right with Ash. Yes, his old girlfriend Ashley Ash, who you know he was that she was his high school girl, high school sweetheart, and they had drifted apart over the years, lost track of each other, and bump into each other entirely by accident while he is involved in his quest, while he is already getting involved with the Apkalu, and yeah, she's in there partly. I mean, just as sort of a mechanic uh, in the in the story keep reminding Sam and the reader that he can stop at any time. He could just quit and go off and, and have a real life with her, but he can't. You know, Cap- Captain Ahab could just go off and catch regular whales, but he can't. <clears throat> and he's also tempted, because he has power over, compul- he can compel certain uh, behavior. He can compel people to obey him. Um, this the great, uh, the big magic uh, conundrum is um, to make somebody love you, or to act the way you want them to, or let them be free. And even though you have power, um, yes. Well, Sam always, you know, that's a constant struggle for him because he, he despises this aspect that, of this, this power that the Apkalu have, but he keeps using it. Um, it's too damn convenient. Um, although, the, you know, his, his relationship with Ash, he does sort of feel is sacrosanct, and so um, uh, the only time he really employs magic is when they've broken up. <clears throat> and that's as much to protect her as himself. Yeah. And the I mean this is the sort of progress of the book is like Sam has to use this power in order to um try to undo the power and he's it's it's a constant temptation for him. Yes, and he gets more and more compromised himself. You know, he is very much an illustration of that old quote from uh, Friedrich Nietzsche about uh you know, if you gaze too long into the abyss, the abyss will gaze into you. And he is, spends the whole book basically <laughs> st- looking real hard into the abyss, and uh, you know, part of part of the whole thing is how he, he is gradually giving up or losing his his own moral moral compass, getting more and more like the people he is fighting. <clears throat> but tell us a little bit more about the uh, the monsters, uh, particularly what are the the Anzu is the crow-headed anzu is another sumerian word it's a a plague demon a bird-headed plague demon um um and i use that as the name for the crow-headed monster that killed his family um and they're you know they're uh, i i went with sumerian mythology partly because um it's really old and these guys have been around for a long time and um, it's not as familiar, it would not be as familiar to my readers as the more well-known, oh, Celtic or Greek or uh, you know, Greco-Roman or um, 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 Judeo-Christian lore. So, uh, you know, I, I want something that would be a little bit, a little bit exotic. Um, and so, yeah, the Anzu are... are Plague demons, and they uh, they hang out in the in the underworld or the other world. And uh, um, one of them was commanded to kill Sam's family, and he eventually finds it. Um, and but is frustrated in his attempts to find out why and who commanded it. At least at first, later on he figures it out. <clears throat> 
and there are other there are elementals of uh, protection and things like that as around as well that you can call them that aren't ghosts of people necessarily. Right. Yes. The spirit. Most of the spirits are not. There are ghosts. Uh, he has a couple of of. He has a, a duppy, which is a Caribbean word for a evil spirit, usually a ghost. Um, and. Uh, in fact, one of the temptations that Sam does not give into is the urge to try to conjure up the spirits of his dead family. Um, the, the, he keeps thinking about it, but if somehow he feels like that would he, he he feels like that would be almost like dirtying them, so he doesn't do it. But uh, the temptation is always there, um, and of course that's another that makes the whole sort of. Uh, conspiracy and and cat and mouse game he has with uh, Moreno even more complicated because unless you take precautions, you know your victims can your victims can identify you. <laughs> I was going to say the one advantage they have and the one sort of big advantage that the Apkalu have though is that part of part of being one of the Apkalu is that they have they are still they're the beneficiaries of an ancient bargain. Uh, which uh, frees them from consequences. They, when they die, their souls cease to exist. So you can't call up other Apkalu when they die. Uh, and it means that they have this essentially get-out-of-jail-free card for any afterlife reward or punishment. Um, and that's sort of part of what the whole novel is about, is how, how do people behave when, you know, when there are no constraints on them at all, they need to fear neither God nor man. You know, they can, they can, they have power over humans, and they have, they, they will not suffer any, any divine punishment. So, what, what does this do? And it, I'm, I guess I take rather a dim view that they, what they do is mostly not very nice. Yeah. Well, all of the, everything that you get that will be enjoyable, you're going to get now. Because there isn't anything afterwards. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's part of it. They they're they're very heedless, um, and they certainly are very selfish. Yeah. What is um? Well, what else do we need to? Will we need to say about the book to um, to round out a discussion of it? Do you think have we covered enough? Well, let's see. Um, I I it almost all of it takes place. Ninety-nine percent of it takes place in New York City, um, or just outside. Um, uh, I've never lived in New York, so it always had this sort of air of exoticism to me. So part of it is, you know, I've, I've been there a number of times, you know, and, and I'm got very interested in the place's history. And it's one of the few cities in North America that has a lot of its own sort of folklore just by virtue of being such a big and populous city. Um, and so I tried to make use of as much real New York stuff as possible. Um, and that was fun. Yeah, it's got a good feel. I lived there for uh, 10 years. So you, I think you've pulled in. And the, the Magic Academy, what is it, on the Upper East Side, sort of, or is it? Up at the very northern tip of the island. Yeah. You have it on 125th Street, I think, on the... Over, yeah. So. yeah. Yes, and part, part of it is there's also, you know, elements of... The, one, of the house, one of the places where stuff happens in the book is, is a, a house which is left over from before the, the Olmsted master plan for the island. So there's these little fossils here and there, Broadway is the most well-known one, of streets that predate the New York street grid. And another one is St. Nicholas Avenue up on the northern part, up above Central Park. And, you know, I just love the idea that there's, there's, a, there's, an old, there's a hidden city under uh, the, the modern plan of Manhattan. I mean, that's the sort of thing you, you'll see in, in European cities often, you know, but it's very rare in North America. Yeah, yeah. There's a hieroglyph of power somewhere <laughs> that's, that's powering all this magic. 
So that's that's cool. Yeah, I thought you you captured New York very well. Um, as a semi-native, <laughs> so, at least long enough. So, um, all right. Well, um, what are you working on now? You were telling me a little earlier. So the novel I'm working on now is part of a what I hope to make into a series. My name for the setting is The Billion Worlds, and it takes place in the very far future in the solar system when uh, humanity and advanced artificial intelligences are turning the solar system into a a Dyson sphere, or uh, perhaps a better term would be a Dyson swarm, because I'm using Freeman Dyson's original concept, which is not a single big ball around a star, but basically just a cloud of artificial habitats and power collectors and everything else, terraform, you know, hollowed-out asteroids, mm-hmm. hollowed-out comets, etc., um, that just intercepts much of the sun's energy. And, um, you know, when you start doing the math, you realize that this can have a population. I think, I'm, I think there's a, roughly a quintillion people in that setting. <laughs> and... Um, you know, there's there's a billion different space habitats, terraformed moons, planets, hollowed-out asteroids, etc. And I realized that that gave me room to do just about any... I can, I can use just about any trope of classic science fiction that I want in that setting. There's just so, so much variety, so much potential variety that, you know, there there will be feudal worlds with space princesses, and there will be, you know, there's probably multiple or thousands of habitats ruled by, you know, tyrannical guys named Ming or whatever, just waiting for a uh, heroic uh, visitor to overthrow him. And, you know, I can, I can basically tell any interstellar science fiction story in a very hard SF context. Yeah, cool. Sounds sort of like Philip Jose Farmer-esque uh, in its multiplicity. You know, that a, 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 a city of, of a million people in that setting is as important as one human being is on Earth. You know, so countries are as important as people. Yeah. Well, sounds pretty cool. I, and that reminds me of that... Uh, Oh, what is the Star Child trilogy where the uh <laughs> where anyway, it sounds really cool like uh you're you're tapping into some great old um great old uh tropes that have powered science fiction and uh and, and re re engineering them for, for us, which is exactly what we like at Bain. <laughs> so it sounds great. Uh do you have a title yet or are you thinking about that? The the title of this book is The Godel Trigger, which is the name of a uh, super weapon that uh, is based on um, Godel's incompleteness theorem, and it's the idea is that it's a it's a conceptual weapon that it would affect digital intelligences, but not human minds. Ah, ah, ah cool, cool. So. That's coming up, but uh, out now at booksellers everywhere is The Initiate by James L. Cambius. And, um, Jim, thank you so much for uh, talking with us about The Initiate today. It was great talking to you, and uh, uh, you know I, I, I'm going to be doing some signings around and readings here around New England in the next several weeks. Um, I've got, uh, we're doing a book launch party at uh, Book Moon in East Hampton next week. And then um, I've got uh, readings and signings set up at Flights of Fantasy in Albany and Annie's Bookstop in um, uh, Worcester. And uh, I believe we're setting up something at the, um, the Lovecraftian Arts and Sciences store in Providence. Whoa, that sounds Cthulhu-esque. Well, you know, the the, the cool. initiate is at least horror adjacent. So, well, all of that can be found um, on the Bain dot com website and the calendar as well. Um, you can find out where you can go uh, get your um, Cambius signature on on a copy of the initiate. So, I will be at 
the World Science Fiction Convention this summer in uh, uh, New Zealand. If anybody wants to uh, bring a copy of the Initiate halfway around the world for me to sign, I'll happily do it. Now here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now another entry in David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. HMS Imperator, Manticore A, Star Empire of Manticore. Fleet Admiral Lady Dame Honor Alexander Harrington, Duchess and Stedholder Harrington, Commanding Officer Grand Fleet, finished tucking in her white turtleneck uniform blouse and reached up to pull the pins which had confined her hair on top of her head while she showered. The long braid fell almost to her waist, and she allowed herself to luxuriate in the sensual silkiness of it as she unbraided it, then brushed it into a shimmering tide. She usually kept it braided when in uniform, but there was no sense pretending she hadn't grown to love the way it felt loose. Besides, she was scheduled for a state dinner groundside later that evening, and she'd be attending in her persona as a Grace instead holder, not an officer of the Queen. She finished brushing, slid the brush into its storage slot, and gathered the hair at the back of her head with a hairband of Harrington Green. She cocked her head to assess the effect, then frowned slightly and leaned closer to the mirror while the fingers of her right hand explored the tenderness of the skin under one almond-shaped eye. Darn, she muttered, as she realized it was going to bruise after all. The long, sinuous, cream and gray tree cat stretched along the bulkhead perch behind her, bleaked a laugh, and she turned to glower at him. Not funny, Stinker. Her tone was admirably stern, despite the slight twitch of her lips. You know how much grief Hamish is going to give me across the canapes if I turn up sporting a shiner. Nimitz only laughed harder, and the fingers of his true hands flickered. It was not my own fault, she told him. Spencer's still getting better, and I can't block all his hits. More finger flicker, and she snorted. The way my schedule's packed, I have to schedule sparring bouts whenever I can, and you know it. It's not my fault Elizabeth decided to throw this shindig tonight. Nimitz considered that for a second or two, then nodded grudgingly, and she laughed and scooped him off the perch. She cradled him in her arms, pressing her face into his silky, clean-smelling coat for a long moment then carried him out of her palatial quarter's head into her day cabin. She crossed the desk, let him flow out of her arms onto the perch above it, and settled into the body-conforming chair. She touched the darkening bruise under her right eye again and shrugged. She'd just have to take a little extra care with her cosmetics, she decided. With luck, Hamish wouldn't even notice, which would spare her the unmerciful ribbing he'd administer if he did. She'd have been less worried if Emily had been going to be present to help divert his fire, but their wife was staying home at Whitehaven with the kids. That probably said something positive about her sanity. She thought about that for a moment, then sighed and brought her terminal online for the first item on today's installment of her unending paper chase. I really hate to think of the number of photons we slaughter every day on personnel reports, she thought glumly. Talk about genocide. Her lips twitched in amusement, but then she shook her head and began skimming rapidly through the report before her. Excuse me, my lady, but that report you asked for is here. Don't you mean that other report I asked for? Honor asked Riley, looking up from the readiness report on her desk display. 
Well, yes, Commander Angela Clayton acknowledged. She wore the blue on blue of the Grayson Space Navy with the salamander flash of the protector zone, but her accent was manticorn. In fact, it was pure Griffin Highlands. You did ask for it, though, she pointed out with something close to a twinkle. Commander Clayton was a new addition to honor staff, serving both as a liaison with High Admiral Judah Yanikov and as Grand Fleet's logistics officer. A sturdy, no-nonsense sort, Commander Clayton. Although she'd been born in Rearson, the same barony as Anton Zilwicky, she'd become a citizen of Harrington Steading following five years of loner service with the GSN, which explained why she habitually addressed honor with the my lady of a steadholder, rather than the your grace of a manticorn duchess. It could get confusing sometimes. And what does Phil have to report? Honor asked now. His survey crews are finished with the first half dozen super dreadnoughts, my lady, the commander replied. The almost twinkle in her eye had faded, and she sighed. He purely hates the assignment, says it makes him feel like a swamp grubber. Honor grimaced at the simile. She knew Captain Clayton, just as she'd made it her business to know all of the protector's own captains, so she understood what Angela was saying, but he was being grossly unfair to himself. The Grayson Swamp Grubber was one of the more loathsome carrion eaters in the explored galaxy, and it was none too picky about how its meal turned into carrion. That aside, his reports about what we expected, except that his ticks are a bit more impressed by the Sully's current grazer mount than anyone anticipated. Clayton shook her head. I glanced at the specs, and he's right. That he is an impressive piece of hardware, milady. Nobody ever said the Solarian League doesn't have good tech, Honor pointed out. Their problem is they don't always have the right tech when they need it. Coupled with the fact that they think they do, Clayton agreed. Point, Honor conceded. She tipped back in her chair. So, Phil's impressed by it? Yes, my lady. He did point out that he can't imagine what we'll do with all of them, though. Honor nodded. No doubt quite a few people were wondering the same sorts of things. But they had to do something with the wreckage of Massimo Filaretta's 11th fleet. That was why its surviving units had been moved to Manticore B after the second battle of Manticore. The massacre of Manticore, really, she thought, eyes darkening in memory. Under normal circumstances, they might have been parked somewhere as a potential bargaining chip to be returned to the other side following successful peace negotiations. Nobody seemed likely to be doing any negotiating anytime soon, however, and even if they'd been inclined to, no one would want Filaretta's orphans back. In an era of pod-launched missiles, they were death traps, hopelessly obsolete, both tactically and conceptually, however good the technology with which they'd been built. Failing the possibility of repatriation, they'd normally have been sent to the shipbreakers to be sawn up into chunks and run through the smelters and refineries for reclamation and separation. No one would have worried too much about the technology. All they would have wanted were the raw materials from which Manticore's voracious orbital industry would have built the newer and far more useful technology the Star Empire needed. But that orbital industry had been hammered into ruin by the Yawata strike in February. Five months later, it remained less than a shadow of a memory of what it once had been. The fabricating plants to use the raw materials were only beginning to be rebuilt, and even with every gram of assistance Beowulf and the Star Empire's new Havenite allies could provide, it would be at least six months before the fabricators and nano farms were back online once again. Even then, they'd possess only a fraction of their pre yawata capacity for a long time to come. Which was why Phil Clayton and his combined Manticoran, Grayson, Havenite salvage crews were crawling all over the captured Solarian ships. Their internal systems might be of Solarian manufacture, with all the compatibility headaches that promised, but they already existed. Under the circumstances, it made sense to see what could be removed for reuse, from fusion plants to reconfigurable molly cirques to point defense lasers, before the gutted hulks were consigned to the reclamation platforms. For that matter, Sandra Crandall's surviving units were manticore-bound with minimal passage crews to share exactly the same fate. Hopefully, they could find someone besides Captain Clayton to deal with them when they arrived. Well, she said now, if nothing else, we could probably use the grazers for hellacious wormhole minefields. Have you seen the design Admiral Forker came up with for that? 
No, I haven't, my lady. I'll bet it was interesting, though. Admiral Foraker does have a tendency to think outside the box, Honor acknowledged with a smile. In this case, though, what she suggested is basically an array of remotely deployed energy weapons. Capital ship-sized weapons, as a matter of fact. She's thinking something like Moriarty, not Mycroft. In fact, she's already worked out the quickest way to run up a remote platform tied into the central fire control system of a standard terminus fort. I thought that was what the minefields we already have were for, my lady. Oh, they are. But those are basically one-shot, either bomb-pumped platforms or IDEWs that get one shot, then have to recharge between engagements. She's talking about feeding these things with broadcast power for the plasma capacitors. If her numbers hold up, they'd be good for at least five or six full-power shots each before the platforms had to shut down until the maintenance crews could recharge the capacitor reservoirs. So if these Sally Grazers are as good as Phil seems to be suggesting, and given the fact that a scientist-class SD mounts, what, 64, 65 grazers? Stripping a couple of hundred of them could let us build a really nasty defensive array, don't you think? Yeah, I think you could call it that, Commander Clayton said, her expression suddenly very thoughtful indeed. The thought of what nine or ten thousand ship-of-the-wall-sized grazers could do to any target emerging from a wormhole terminus when it could have neither wedge nor sidewalls for protection was sobering. I'm not sure how well it'll work out in the end, Honor said. But I've observed that Admiral Foraker tends to get what she goes after. And now that Admiral Hempel's finally taken the Wayland R&D staff out to Bolt Hole, Clayton nodded. The notion of sharing the Star Empire's latest technology and research projects with a star nation with which it had been at war, cold or hot, for the better part of a T-century, had sat poorly with quite a lot of the RMN. In fact, there'd been enough passive resistance and foot-dragging to provoke a display of the famous Winton temper. Clayton hadn't been present for the meeting at which Empress Elizabeth had made her feelings on the subject abundantly, one might almost have said super abundantly clear, but Duchess Harrington had, and it was remarkable how quickly things had begun moving after that little interview. On the other hand, the commander thought with a mental smile, it would appear there'd been just as much foot-dragging on the Havenite side when it came to telling their erstwhile enemies and present allies exactly where Bolt Hole itself lay. Not surprisingly, since it was so much closer to the Manticore system than to the Haven system. In fact, it was the next best thing to 600 light years from Nouveau Paris, and less than 350 from Landing City. No wonder O and I never found it, she thought. We were busy looking for something in the Republic. It never even occurred to us to look on the far side of Manticore for it. And even if it had, a lost colony would have been the last thing we looked for. Still, Bolthole's location did explain why the legislaturalists had selected it as a site for their secret naval base, once the system more or less fell into the People's Republic's lap. And as a Griffin Highlander, not to mention someone who'd married a Grayson, Angela Clayton had a better idea than most of what it had taken for the people of the planet's sanctuary to survive until Haven's survey crew rediscovered their existence at the end of the J156-18L KCR-12606 warp bridge. And how they found the place is a lot less important than what they've done with it since, she reminded herself. After the Yawada Strike's devastation here in Manticore, Bolt Hole had become easily the largest single shipbuilding facility of the entire Grand Alliance, not to mention the site of the redoubtable Shannon Foraker's R&D command. So if there's one place in the galaxy none of us want the people behind the Yawata strike to find, it's damned well Bolt Hole. Do we know how Bolt Hole's coming on Mycroft, my lady? She asked, and Honor smiled as she followed the commander's obvious chain of thought. It's going to be a while before they get the system fully up and running, she said. But Admiral Hempel's taking along an entire squadron of Invictuses to provide Apollo and Keyhole 2 coverage in the meantime. And I understand Admiral Forker's already rung in some new variations on her sensor platforms. Once she and Hempel sit down and put their heads together, the rest of the galaxy better hang on to its socks. A thought that doesn't break my heart at all, my lady, Clayton said. Not one little bit.
That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the end of the beginning of the end as time winds down and the clocks run backwards plus thanks, praise, and gratitude to James L. Cambius, author of The Initiate. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 